0: You are listening to inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary stuff. Welcome to the Doolanders.
1: Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning.
0: Hit it boys. Ladies and gents, this is the moment you've been waiting for. Searching in the dark, your sweat soaking through the floor.
1: Oh my god da 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 I don't know the rest of the words, da-da-da. How much do you want to be Hugh Jackman, Blake? I, re-
0: I really do want to be Hugh Jackman. And if I can't be Hugh Jackman, I want him on the show, Nick. Can you get him on the show?
1: Sure. I'll just call him.
0: Could you please? This week's guest is not Hugh Jackman. But it's Talia Azaria, who is the GM... Of Circus Oz, she is an amazing doer. But before we get into Talia, I've got a question for you. What's that? If you were a circus performer, yep, an expert in your field mm-hmm. of circusing, what would your discipline be? What,
1: what would you be? If I could do it, I'd go up high, as high as you can get. Trapeze, something top like of the it, top of the big top, top of the big top, yep. high wire, something yep. like that. Yep. But something that includes a lot of movement. I like moving fast. So trapeze, that feeling of not being attached to anything, grab hold of the other person and go and do it. If we were to base it on current ability, it would (laughs) probably be be something more ground-based. Like? I don't know, the uh, popcorn sales (laughs) guy. (laughs) That's, That's probably as far as I'd be able to take it.
0: Yeah. What a fascinating world the circus is.
1: I can't wait to hear this story. So tell us a little bit about Talia Azaria. So Talia, actually younger than you'd imagine in terms of when you start listening to the sorts of depth of knowledge she has in a lot of areas. Um, it's it's her approach to life and career that really struck me and it has a lot to do with her upbringing but also the types of organisations that she worked at that gave young people the freedom to experiment and take risks. And that's something she goes into quite a lot about and she could have taken easier paths, I'm guessing, and she didn't. She worked hard. She volunteered a ton to get skill base up because she enjoyed it because she was passionate about it. And opportunities started presenting um, themselves to her off the back of that work and what she learned. So it's really interesting, very inspiring. There's a lot to get out of uh, Talia's episode.
0: Sure is. As you said, she is purpose-led, values-driven, and she gives people a platform to create a brand-new possibility. Here's Talia.
1: Blake, do you like stories of people doing?
0: I love stories of people doing, Nick.
1: Well, if you out there like stories of people doing... And you want us to make more stories of people doing? Then like this podcast, subscribe, and tell your mates. Because the more people we have listening, the more episodes we can make, and that's better for everyone out there who's doing or wants to do. And as Arnold would say, do it. What he said? I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, Talia, welcome to the Do-Landers. How are you doing?
2: Good, thank you. Hi, Nick. Hi, Blake. Yes! Uh, good she to be here.
0: <laughs> Talia, 10 points for you because you, you said uh, mixed name first. Uh, <laughs> Great to have you, Talia.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, Talia, tell the Do-Landers, what do you do?
2: Um, well, look, I might just start by uh, telling you where I'm speaking to you from, um, which is the land of the Kulin Nations. I feel very privileged to be on this land um, and acknowledge that that the land was never ceded, it will, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, I what do I do? I facilitate uh, people's ideas. I think that's how I describe it in a nutshell. Um, throughout my career, I have been in positions where I've led people um, through change, um, and have helped people bring their fantastic creativity to fruition. Um, That's where I am now at Circus Oz. I work with uh, performers and producers and um, many other creative people to help them move from um, thought to reality.
0: That is one of the best answers we've led off with, the facilitating people's ideas. I love it. Um, And you mentioned that you are at Circus Oz today. In what, what capacity, what's your role at Circus Oz?
2: Yeah, I, I'm the general manager at Circus Oz, um, yeah. uh, which means that I take care of, uh, well, I mean everything because you manage generally <laughs> yeah. in the role. So yeah. everything from um, sort of a chief chief of um, staff function, you know, managing the, the staff, um, the finances of the organisation, um, the, the strategy, uh, you know, anything that sort of needs doing. Um, at, at a high level, obviously, there's a team that work with me, and I um, work very closely with our CEO. Um, but I'm sort of that intermediary point where I um, work under the CEO to to help, as I said before, facilitate um, everybody's um, great work.
0: Cool. It, it takes some um, some skill to bring together a, a bunch of people's ideas and um make them into something cuz if you look around the the world the the business world uh, the creative world there's so many unfulfilled um ideas and strategies so can't wait to delve into how you've brought some of these things to life and um I know there's some pretty cool stories in there so you said you worked uh, or you work at uh, Circus Oz so you weren't born into um a traveling company of performers were you or were you
2: <laughs> i was actually i was born into like the opposite a very stable very um grounded um geographically and otherwise um family i grew up in the southeastern suburbs of melbourne um and my my parents um uh, my dad was born in israel um and he moved to australia uh about 43 years ago, um, my mum was born in Australia, um, but we've got sort of got a whole array of heritage behind that. My dad's dad was born in Russia. His mum was born in either India or Afghanistan. We sort of, you know, there's a bit of debate on that side of the family about where my my mum's dad was born in Poland. So there's quite a lot of um, uh, cultural diversity, I suppose, that underpins my background, that is something that I probably wasn't really aware of growing up um, until I went out, found my way in the world and realised that I was culturally diverse. (laughs) There
0: there you go. um, And just you, we were talking the other night and you were explaining a little bit about um, how and where you grew up and in your words you said you grew up simultaneously in and on the periphery um, of the Jewish community
2: what does that mean yeah um, so my family is Jewish so I was born into um, into Judaism and was led to uh, you know led raised to live a, a Jewish life but I suppose never really felt like um, I identified with that or you know for for whatever reason it, it just never felt rang true for me n- n- never 100 percent felt comfortable um i always loved the the tradition and the you know coming together um of people and the food <laughs> the great food but uh, yeah i just never felt 100 percent comfortable um living that Jewish life. And I think part of it was because it was predetermined for me um, and I'm um, quite a fierce, um, you know, I know my own mind and, and um, I know where I want to go in life and, and that was laid out for me. Um, so growing up, um, I always knew quite plainly that that was the life that I was supposed to live um, and it wasn't until I went to, Um, to uni really, that I realised that the Jewish community is just um, one small, really small community actually in the context of um, Victoria, Australia, the whole world, um, and that there is is so much diversity out there um, that is exciting to learn about and um, I hadn't really felt like, I suppose, when you know, growing up as a child that I had been exposed to those different ideas and, and belief systems, um, which is not to say now that, that I'm, I'm not Jewish because I am. I'm Jewish. And I'm raising my son Jewish and in some ways have found my way back to Judaism slightly more than I had before um, because I think of the familiarity of it. Um, particularly at a time like this, when you're in lockdown and isolated from that community, um, you sort of don't know what you've got until it's gone. <laughs> um, particularly the bagels.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, that is true. Yeah, and, and is is it the is it the connection? Is it the traditions? Like in this time where, like we are, we're all just looking at it, going, "Shit!" The the basics in life, the the the. Um, the continuity of things that we know um, seem to become, you know, more important than I don't know the material possessions that we've got or whatever. Is it, what is it that through these, you know, strange times that you hark back to and think about?
2: I think it's a, it's again, it's that sense of familiarity and um, the sense of feeling at home. You know, you don't always feel comfortable at home but it's still your anchor, it's still your place to go back to Um, in the same way that I feel um, a sort of strange and and slightly unexplained affinity with Israel as a country. It's not a place that I've ever lived Um, but I have travelled there and I grew up knowing that I was a dual citizen because my dad is Israeli and so there's this sense that um, and maybe I, I have been taught it along the way, kind of in this subconscious way, um, that it will always be home. You know, if I if I need an anchor point, I feel like I can go to Israel or I can go back to the Jewish community because they are, that community is where I come from, um, regardless of where I live now. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: it's, you know, sometimes, sometimes, uh, um my family, my my husband and my son, and I have been on holiday in some regional Victorian town, and I overhear people speaking Hebrew., yeah. and it's so out of context, but it's like, oh, I know those people. i I know what they're saying. I can understand them. nobody else around here can understand what they're saying except for me. And there's something very special about about that, I think. And I think in times like this, when you're, isolated from it and you're craving some kind of normalcy and stability um going back to what has what grounded you in the first place how you were raised um i think gives you that stability um Mm. yeah
0: we'll get into there's a, a thread through all of your doing um and you know one of those things is community perhaps that's you know um what you hark back to? Hey, your um, your dad and your mum. You said that you're, you know, um, fierce uh, in in your approach to things. And um, what did you learn from your parents? You learned a couple of things, and I love one of the sayings that your your dad that your dad gave you, and you've carried with you.
2: Yes, well, my parents are doers through and through. Um, I think that. I am the way I am because I, I probably really didn't have a choice in the matter because, you know, nature versus nurture, like I had both of them in their genes, they are doers and in practice that they are doers. So um, they're sort of entrepreneurial by instinct. Um, they have always ran their own small businesses um, until very recently um, but they've always, you know, if they've wanted to do something, they just do it. Um, and my dad has, he's always got, you know, some good lessons to impart. He, he, he loves to talk. He's this extroverted, gentle, extroverted man in a family of introverts <laughs> and he just wants someone to talk to. So he'll often um, come out with these phrases um, and one of them that I have taken with me throughout my life is the expression, you've already got a no in your pocket and you're looking for a Yes. Just to say that if you don't ask the question, if you don't ask for what you want, the answer is immediately no, because you haven't even bothered to to stick your neck out and and ask. And I think it's that sort of spirit of backing yourself, not being afraid to put yourself out there and and ask the question, you know, what is the worst that can happen really? The worst that can happen is you can get another no. And my dad has said to me, you know, well, you go back and you say, no, I'm sorry, I've already got a no in my pocket. What I'm looking for is a yes. Um, and that, that is something that I've taken through with me.
0: It's great advice. Um, as you are growing up, were you, was it clear on what you wanted to do what um, you know, in life and uh, what, what you wanted to make a career of?
2: Yeah, it probably wasn't until towards the end of high school that I started to really form some ideas in that space. I knew how I was. You know, I knew that I um, enjoyed writing and that I enjoyed being persuasive and I enjoyed, you know, my dad has stories of me when I was um, really little um, trying to sell my toys to to other kids. So, you know, you might think that there's some kind of kind of sales (laughs) persuasion kind of um, thing in there. So I I thought about um, law. I thought about psychology as well. I thought about um, um, you know, I guess those sorts of careers, and and had also been brought up to consider um, careers that would make me money, um, <laughs> because that was, you know, my parents were really hardworking, but they were hardworking to a, to an end. That you know, it was because they wanted to pr- um, provide. for for the family. So that was a value that was ingrained in me, Um, but one that I ended up not really following um, because I went to do journalism at RMIT University and um, I do remember my mum clearly saying, there are no Jewish kids at RMIT University. Why are you going to Monash or Melbourne? (laughs) And I said, because I don't want to, because that's not what I want to do, because I want to do journalism and RMIT have the best program in, in the state. So that's what I want to do. I want to be a journalist. Um, and as I went through the course um, and discovered the people around me and their passion for the news, and um, found myself, you know, we had weekly news quizzes um, where you had to sort of read the paper throughout the week and then you were quizzed on what had happened in the news. And I realised when I was cramming for the news quiz at the end of the week, rather than just naturally feeling like I want to read the paper today or I want to listen to the news, I realised that I probably didn't have the hunger for hard news journalism like my fellow students did um, and that, you know, it's such a competitive space. uh, It probably wasn't for me. So um, I found through that experience, though, um, I found Sin, which is um, a youth radio station that I ended up being at for for many years um, after. Um, but Sin showed me that um, journalism and the media is not just about um, hard news. There's so much more to it.
0: So tell us about Sin uh, and you know when you walked into that organisation and um, and I guess what you learnt about possibility?
2: Well, I was first introduced to SIN um, through the journalism course. So one of the requirements of the course was that we go and read news bulletins on air. Um, So I went in and and started doing that because I had to and then um, I found that I really enjoyed it. Um, So, and let me just give you the context for it. You know, it's a volunteer-run station, mostly. There are a few paid staff, but mostly people are volunteers. Um, At that time, I still lived in East Bentley, where I grew up. Uh, It's about a 45-minute drive into Carlton um, to go to the studio. Um, Somewhere along the line, I moved from doing these news bulletins for the the radio journalism course um, into just pure volunteering because I enjoyed it. Um, and there were times where I would, um, you know, wake up in the morning, four o'clock in the morning at home, write my news bulletin, drive into the city, go on the air for two minutes and read read the bulletin. And that was it. That was done for the day. And then I would kind of go to uni or whatever. Um, but... I suppose that demonstrated a level of commitment because there were then other young volunteers around the station who started talking to me and one tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, we're looking for an executive producer for our breakfast show. Um, Do you, you know, are you interested? Remembering it's voluntary. The show was from 6 to 9am, Monday to Friday. Uh, I lived 45 minutes away. And I remember, distinctly remember at the time uh, saying to uh, someone that I was seeing at the time, well, should I do this? Like, you know, this, it's kind of cr- crazy, right? Uh, and he said, no, I don't think you should. And I thought, well, I don't think that you're the right person for me and I think I should do it. So I did do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did. I stuck around, and I produced that breakfast show for about eighteen months. And somewhere along the line in that period, I pitched a a television version of the breakfast show to Channel Thirty One, the community TV station, and they took it. And so I moved from producing the radio show into producing the TV show, which was an hour of live TV every morning. Um, And it was just the best. Such a great experience. And.
0: what what was what was the best about it? Like what what was it? The
2: the best thing is that you are given a platform to communicate with. You don't you don't know who you're communicating with. It could be, um, you know, Donald driving the bus from Ivanhoe to Northland. Um, we used to get calls. Um, from bus drivers and tradies and you know other people listening in the morning, you're talking to to anyone who happens to find you on the dial or, t- or switch on the TV. Um, and as long as you're within the law, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> so we're given the, this platform and this freedom to really be as creative as we wanted to be. Um, to you know, we learned how to make radio and we learned how to make TV by doing. Um, there's one thing to kind of learn the theory of it if you go to uni. It's a whole other thing to get that experience to be given an hour of TV every day and told it's yours, you know, do whatever you want. And you know what? It's okay if you stuff it up. Um, it, you, you, it, you you make of it what you want and I think that that opportunity is so rare and the fact that I had was given that opportunity or I took that opportunity Um, had completely set me up for my career because it taught me that experimentation is a good thing, that if you get it wrong the first time, you haven't, um, that's not a failure because if you've learnt something, then that's a success. And that was what I always tried to instil on um, the other young volunteers that I was working with because I was often in leadership roles um, within the teams. Um, I really tried to um, facilitate people to to think big
0: so how so i'm going to play back a quote from someone who said something about you once and I, i you know tell us about how you um how you did facilitate that so so someone said about you across that time talia has expanded the organization in both capacity and ambition in a way that was carefully maintained at that in a way that has carefully maintained our commitment to community values. When you think about being able to um, increase an organization's uh, capacity and ambition, like the ambition bits, the big bit, right? How how did you get, how did you do that?
2: (laughs) That's a great question. My mind is just going to, who said that quote?
0: Andy, Andy Lynch said that. (laughs) that. Uh, Like I think about what you, you know, first up, you said to us you facilitate ideas, yeah. right? He's a guy that's, you know, you've worked with for um, a bunch of years and has looked at what you do and you've grown the capacity of an organisation and, and you've said or demonstrated to that organisation what's possible is bigger than, you know, what, what you previously thought. How did you do that?
2: Um, I think it's it's by living your values, really. Um, my values are, are around conversation, creativity, um, and community. And I take that through with me everywhere I go. So, um, you know, I'm always encouraging everybody to feel open, um, to, to bring ideas. Um, you know, it, for me, a top-down approach doesn't work. It's quite collaborative um, and collective. I think in, the, in that scenario at At SYN, being a youth organisation, there was a hunger and a healthy dose of naivety that meant that everybody was really open um, because, you know, we were all under the age of 26. When I was the general manager of SYN, I was 24 and I didn't know any different. And that's beautiful because the older you get, the more you know (laughs) and the more risk-averse you become. And so in that context at SYN, we were given permission um, by a, a board of directors, who also, you know, fifty percent of whom were under twenty six. Uh, we were given permission to play, um, and I think it's that it's that that approach of being okay with playing, being okay with the the chance that you might make a mistake um and creating the support structures around that to make sure that people feel comfortable with that that you know that if you make a mistake you're not going to lose your job you know it's all it all contributes to helping shape you and shape the organization and the outcomes that you're looking to achieve um and you know to be quite honest when I left sin I thought oh wow maybe that ability to think big and to to take risks and to experiment and try new things. Maybe that was contained to a youth environment, and maybe I will never find that again. And you know, for that reason, I, I thought that Sin being the general manager of Sin was the best job that I'll ever have because I had complete freedom um, to try new things and to really achieve the things that I wanted to. Um, but I have since found um, recently at Circus Oz um, that those principles do apply. There's there is structure around it um, and there are some constraints but the ability to step back and go so what if we didn't do that thing or you know so so what if we tried that thing you know it's you can find that ambition in other places I guess is what I'm trying to say Um, and I have found it again in a different way Um, but it is something you have to cultivate and how
1: common is that, Talia, amongst organizations that you've seen? Because you've worked in a few different places since Sin. And it kind of seems a little, um, idealistic in some respects, but you, you know, Sin is a proving ground for, for young people coming up, um, through the craft. But what have you seen in other organizations that could really benefit from that freedom? Understanding, you know, there are, there's this balance between performance and development. Um, and the older a business is, the more performance orientated they perhaps become. But how much are they missing out on by not adopting what you saw it in?
2: Well, I think it's the difference between a passive and a proactive approach. Um, I have come across organisations um, and and managers and leaders who are more risk adverse um, and then a nervous, I suppose, nervous because you know in in the context that I've worked, um, there's offer millions of dollars of government, you know, taxpayer-funded government funding um, on the line. And, you know, if we don't meet our KPIs, then, you know, maybe we won't get the funding again. And, and yes, I think that's one way to go, but I think, I think that's a very passive approach. I think the more proactive approach is to actually own that conversation and say, you know what, we said we were going to do this thing with this funding, but it's not relevant anymore. The world has changed. We think that our community deserves something different. So we're actually going to do something different. We're going to try it and we're going to evaluate it. And if it hasn't worked for whatever reason, we're going to take something from that and we're going to try something different again. I think that experimentation in Australia in particular, you know, it feels like we're a very conservative country and we don't do that as much as we could. I think, you know, those values you, you hear about in Silicon Valley and, you know, Israel actually is another great example of, um, you know, an entrepreneurial country and workforce. Um, it feels like, you know, we we don't adopt that, that philosophy as much as we could in Australia.
1: Why, why do you reckon that is? Because um, you're right, Israel does pride itself on that entrepreneurship. They've actually got a Tour de France team called Israel Startup Nation. Yeah. <laughs> is flying the flag um, pretty heavily in that direction. What, what's so different about Australia's culture, do you think?
2: I would describe it as more of a passive culture. Um, I uh, I mean, my reference point is very limited because I compare my family, my Israeli family, to my husband's Australian family. He grew up in Albury-Wodonga and the, our families could not be more different. So... Um, you know, his family is is more, um, I use the word passive. I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. I just mean that they are offended when I ask too many questions. Whereas in my family, if you don't ask too, enough questions, you're the idiot because <laughs> you could have just asked the question to get the answer. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I'm in no way saying that my family, my husband's family, are reflective of the differences between Israel and Australia. No, <laughs> we didn't take it that way. <laughs> <laughs> there are yeah. two examples that I think of um, where, when I think, I think it's, a, it's about cultural difference. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure that I can really answer that question. That feels like a really big question to provide a definitive answer to, but it comes down to cultural differences. You know, it starts it starts with cultural differences.
0: What do you think, Nick?
1: Well, I think it's I think it's what our government has been trying to solve for a long time. Why can't we be just like uh, Silicon Valley or Israel? Why are we only you know, relying on pulling things out of the earth to make um, make money for the, the country?
2: It's also the way we structure, you know. It's a, it's it is our systems, our structures that don't value creativity and experimentation. Um, You know, I can say in the not-for-profit world, the funding structures that we have um, limit experimentation because you are bound to, to specific outcomes. If you put in an application and you say, I want to do this project and our outcomes are going to be this, that and the other and here's how we're going to measure success, they come back to you and say, did you meet all these KPIs? And there's this sense of, you know, I can't say no or I can't say actually we pivoted halfway through and now we're doing this other thing um, you know that's where that difference comes for me and what I was describing earlier um, I, overwhelmingly I feel like most people are on the side of caution whereas I'm more inclined to um, you don't even let it get to that point where you're, you're putting in your report you know you develop a really strong relationship with the people who are giving you the funding and you have early conversations to say look I know this is what we said we were going to do. Actually, it feels like that's not right anymore and here's why and here's what we're going to do differently and build that trust over time um, so that you can pivot safely.
1: Yeah, It is a fascinating area and you can tell from a government point of view if you're trying to get re-elected in a three-year cycle or a four-year cycle, um, it's almost too risky to go out and change policy and you know, say so we allocated that funding to such and such. And the same thing when you're in a funded environment, um, you run the risk of not getting funded again uh, for the same thing if you if you fail or if you pivot and it doesn't work.
2: Well, and I suppose that's also, it's, I guess, a symptom of the way, you know, humans operate. People want stability. People don't like surprises generally. You know, people want to know what's coming, um, coming for them and they get very... In my experience, I suppose, I'm talking about the people that I've worked with. If you don't give people enough notice of something, if you don't flag something um, with enough context and information and support in place to help people make that journey, that change journey, it's very disarming and, and you there's a lot of insecurity around that. So I guess it comes from that human nature and the systems that we build come from that and it's all about maintaining stability. So when you say, hey, actually, I think I'm just going to pivot, that goes against the grain.
1: So it's an interesting segue into something we are going to touch on a little earlier and we'll come back to the story where we got to. Um, but obviously COVID-19 has created a lot of problems for people around uh, control and stability. How, well, one, how has it affected your current role? And two, how do you think that plays out in the broader community uh, on the topics we just discussed then?
2: Well, I mean, for Circus Soleil specifically, uh, when the restrictions came in in mid-March, we had um, one show out on the road and they were on tour um, and we had another show that was just about to launch into the Melbourne Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Um, we had to bring, literally the tour bus was driving from uh, I can't remember where they were, but they were driving to Hamilton. We had to bring them back into our building um, and we had to, to stop the, you know, production on the second show um, and we hibernated pretty quickly after that. So we vacated the building in, in mid-March. Everyone moved to working from home. Um, we had a steep, very quick learning curve for people on Zoom. Um, that became the norm and then suddenly, you know, you're in Zoom meetings back to back every day. Um until the novelty wore off. Uh, we hibernated fairly soon after, so that meant we had to stand down our staff. Um, thanks to JobKeeper, we actually were able to continue like a lifeline for most people um, and for a significant number of artists, which was great and not the story everywhere in the arts, um, which is unfortunate, but thankfully for Circus arts, that wasn't the case. Um, so we hibernated, we stood down 80% of our staff. Um, and uh, put in place a skeleton team, a business critical team. Um, I feel very privileged about the fact that I got to continue my work, um, not just for financial reasons but um, for sanity reasons um, because there were, you know, people who had really mixed um, experiences. You know, some people really desperately wanted to work and stay busy during this period of isolation and there were other people saying, I would just really like a job, JobKeeper holiday. Um, so you had everything, you know, both extremes and everything in between. Um, and for us at Circus Oz, the last six months has been an exercise in expectations management. So what we discovered um, was that even though we were ahead of the curve uh, in terms of understanding what, COVID meant Um, and you know we we were learning along the way as everybody was um, but we were very tuned into what was happening and we were predicting sort of a day in advance going think that that tomorrow is the day that we're going to be told you have to work remotely and I think you know tomorrow is the day that restrictions are going to come in and, and all of that that actually wasn't the case for for many of our staff so it wasn't just about managing people's expectations about the work but also about what COVID was um and explain to people why the government had you know made these changes um, and realizing that everybody's not tuned into the twenty four hour media cycle um, as we were. Um, so it was a real change journey, I guess, of moving people um through all of the things that you feel when something horrible happens um, to acceptance. And that's not a linear process either. People go back and forth, you know, as new restrictions come in, or, you know, we had that three to five weeks in May, June, where everyone started to think maybe everything's going to be okay. And then we had to go back again. It can be crippling to have false starts. And we saw that in other organizations, we saw them reopening and then have to close again. And that's so demoralizing for the organization and for the audiences and for the staff. Um, and, and that's been really the most difficult thing for us is managing those expectations of our our stakeholders um, that we are going slow and we're going slow deliberately because you know we Circus Os, actually wasn't in a financial position anyway to take risks in that space and less so now. And it's really, you know, the early conversation that we had about risk-taking is a really fascinating in this context because what we're doing now is complete, completely risk-averse because we're saying COVID has created this barrier for us that we at the moment, you know, cannot overcome. But in a way, it's also completely risky because we're saying we are not going to rush back out there, we're going to hold... Hold it until we are comfortable to go back and we're going to do um, all of this work behind the scenes to redevelop what Circus Oz is so that we can enter the new world with a new direction and a new provocation for audiences Um, because what we had before was in the old world. And so I suppose, you know, that's the thing that has been a constant is that we talk about the new world when not everybody's really ready for a new world.
0: Yeah. Clearly, you're going to need someone that can facilitate people's ideas um, to bring that little baby together. Hey, like if you look across history, you know, after depressions and great depressions and um, moments of, um, you know, downturn, the arts has played this really significant role out of that. You know, that has to history has to tell tell you or fill you with some optimism about what's coming next you would think
2: yeah i I hope so i mean again it comes back to my own values of um creativity and community and conversation i think that the arts plays a huge role in that in having the conversation about recovery you know how are we going to recover from this um It's also, it brings communities together. And we've seen some really beautiful examples during this time. Um, I don't know if anybody's seen the um, East Brunswick, um, the girls who get out on their front lawn in in Brunswick East um, in their fluoro um, lycra uh, and they do their dance routines. Um, there, there's no, there a few articles. That. I'll send you a link. There are there a few okay. articles online about it. Um, and you know, motorists and people drive past and walk past and just cheer and clap and and it brings joy to their day. And you know, the arts is absolutely brings joy. But it can. It it's also about telling that story. um You know, of recovery. And it, there's another example of a friend of mine who, too um Elderly parents are in an aged care home um, and they both had COVID um, and thankfully have recovered, but they're isolated. And so um, my friend and his partner started going there every afternoon to play music outside um, and now they've they that has sort of evolved to a program, a lineup of different musicians, Of you know, socially distanced, of course, and, and just rocking up with their guitar or, or, you know, the trumpet and just playing a bit of music outside this aged care home for these two people to hear and, you know, all the residents in nearby um, rooms can also hear it. It's such joy. You know in in a moment where it, there is such challenge the arts brings that sense of relief i think
0: yeah relief and optimism uh, that's a beautiful thing hey i'm interested um when i think about your education you um and how that shaped your doing so you you walked into sin and um, you had an education by, you know, osmosis, by doing, by being immersed in, in a world of possibility. And then you went and did an MBA at Melbourne Business School. You followed the, the traditional path. You know, through those two experiences, how do you think about the way that, that shaped what you do and what you think about um, what you want to do next?
2: Well, I mean, I got towards the end of my time as general manager at CIN and I thought, wow, I've had such an incredible experience here and I've learned so much. And I think this is kind of what I want to do um, in other organizations. But who is going to believe me <laughs> that I've had this experience? I guess I better go and get a degree to to um, you know, validate it. <laughs> yeah. So I had my I had my Bachelor of Communication in Journalism. Um, but it was nothing like where I had moved into because where I'd moved into was leadership and management. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I think that I should go and get the tools uh, and the theory to put behind my gut feeling. Um, and so the MBA gave me that in, in spades and it was a really fantastic opportunity but also a very confronting opportunity because it was probably the first time that I realised the bubble that I lived in, Um socially and politically, um, I was, you know, one of very few um, people representing a not-for-profit organisation with most other students um, in in the corporate world. Um, And I learnt so much um, from them and about them, but I also learnt about myself and how much, um, what I had sort of taken for granted. And one thing that kind of sticks in my mind is one of the students asking me, um what it means to work for a not for profit. And he said, but what do you mean it is not for profit? What is the point? And and I thought, wow. like, well, I've arrived. Yeah. <laughs> and um and yeah, so it was a it was a fascinating experience from that perspective of um, you know, really wanting to understand the mindset of um of someone like that who says what's the point and how, you know, as I'm as someone who um, wants to Through my work, have really positive social impact. Um, Actually, those are the people that you're talking to rather than the people that you know have who are already there. If you really want to make change, um, bringing those people along who um, who are not in that space at all, that I think that's the real achievement. Um, So, I learned a lot about that, and it also made me very resolute um, in my. mission I suppose to back more women into leadership positions because I found that I was one of very few women in the course as well I think I did a count at one point and there was about 25 percent women and to me that was just not good enough and I took it to the dean and I had conversations about that and I talked about how can you get more women um, in this course and um, you know there are bits and pieces that, that Melbourne Business School do and increasingly you know they, they're doing much more Um, which is fantastic, but that has to start somewhere and I think it has to continue with agitation because um, the job is never done, I don't think. Um, And MBS sort of taught me that a bit. And at the end I got an MBA out of it and I had a a very proud moment of graduating um, with my, I think he must have been about nine months old, my son at that time, Um, and I felt quite proud to be a young woman and a a, a new mum um, getting my degree with my son um, there in the audience because that's one of the things that is most important to me. You have to be the change that you want to see and um, I want my son to grow up knowing that women can do anything just like men.
0: And he can be that uh, male champion of change. Um, Yeah. I'd love to... um, for you to talk to us about your um, another learning experience of yours. So you walked into Circus Oz and um, I think you walked into a a sponsorship role and climbed the ranks super quick and uh, before you know it, you were acting CEO and what played out from there and what did you learn?
2: Yeah, I mean, that was a real pivotal moment in my career um I, I took on the acting CEO role, um, not knowing how long that I would be in that position, um, and ended up being in it for six months. And uh, it was a, a challenging time to be taking on that role, because um, at the time, about halfway through that time, um, the artistic director, who is a co-CEO, was a co-CEO at that time, um, moved on. Um, so we had no artistic leadership, um, we had just me <laughs> me, and um, I had support from, from somebody else also in that space um, and the organisation itself had been over the previous 10 years um, on a bit of a journey where it had started to, you know, audiences had started to move away from it, um, the art itself had started to to change and I guess the, the organisation had been going through an identity crisis and um, I found myself in this position where I didn't necessarily feel like I had permission to, to make the change. I was really holding that space until a permanent CEO had been found Um, because I didn't know how long I was going to be in that role either. Um, So it could have been two months. It could have been two years. It ended up being six months. Um, Along the way, I thought, well, hey, I'm doing this now. I can see all of the things that need to change. And I was incredibly frustrated by the fact that I couldn't make that change. And everybody around me was frustrated with me because I couldn't make that change. And I thought, well, I'm going to put my hat in the ring for this job. Um, And I did that and... Uh, I went into the interview and it was a two-part interview. You you had to do a 15-minute presentation and then it was sort of the interview question time. Um, And I spent all of my time like basically studying for this interview. I planned my presentation. I practised it over and over again, drove my husband crazy. And I went in and I did this presentation and I smashed it, like quite honestly. I got incredible feedback from the panelists and then the interview part went okay and I sort of left and I thought well you know I I think that I've won them over in my presentation anyway so the interview part probably didn't didn't matter and um, I remember sending my husband a message straight after and I said I've done everything you know within my power to get this job I've absolutely put my best foot forward if I don't get the job then it wasn't meant to be and that's fine and so i didn't get the job and i spent about 2 days uh feeling absolutely devastated about that and you know thinking all sorts of things you know i'm doing this job now how can they not see that how yeah. can they, what's wrong with them yeah. um and then i got some advice um uh, from my husband and a few other people um that i really thought about which was you know it's not um it, it's not what you have done to date. It's how you handle this situation. It's what you do with adversity yeah. that counts here. Yeah. Um, so on sort of, it must have been the third day, I got out of bed and I went back to work and I just continued on. Um, and as it turns out, the new CEO that the board chose is incredible and was absolutely the right person for the job absolutely a hundred percent they could not have picked someone better if they had picked me they would have made a mistake um and i've had i've been really blessed actually to to work with that ceo i work really closely you know there was a moment where um before she started i thought well um possibly I'm taking up space here and if we don't get along the right thing to do would be to move on for the sake of the organisation and myself because no one wants to hang around like a bad smell Um, but as it turned out we get on like a house on fire and I uh, feel like we operate in a partnership and I've learned so much more from her and being the general manager under her as CEO than I think I would have if I had just been a CEO. Um, So it's all worked out really well but uh, I feel like that ability to um, to rise above it you know is something that you you I had to work at you know that wasn 't my first instinct,
0: <laughs> yeah, it sucks, and then you go okay let 's uh you know deal with it hey that's such a such a um, a great perspective to have hey we 're just about out of time um, but you know if you had some advice to uh the 15 million people that lift listen to the the do landers um about about people pursuing their values of, and what's important to them i love the way that you can clearly articulate what your values are there aren't many people who you said hey what are your values would know an answer to that um but, but just your advice around, you know, people pursuing their passion or, or their values, what would you say?
2: I think it's actually it's work that you have to do for yourself. I think you need to um, actually sit down and think about it in a structured way. What is it that I value? What is it that is a non-negotiable for me in my work and my life? Um, for me, it, a non-negotiable is being passionate about the work that I do, and that's why I hold so true to those values. Because um, I would just suffocate in anywhere that um, I didn't align with the the mission, you know, and the vision. Um, But that work actually came to me through my MBA. I did careers counselling, which was incredibly valuable, um, and I was stepped through. I was coached through that process of figuring out what my values are. Um, And I just highly recommend it to to everybody because it creates a framework for you um, that is transferable and and helps you figure out what you might want to do next, I think. Um, And the other advice that I always give people, particularly young women, is to back yourself. Um to always say you've already got a no in your pocket and you're looking for that yes. Um, because in my experience, you know you, you may have advocates around you and champions for you, but you also have to go into bat for yourself. And you know if you're in a job interview, no one else is going to help you get that job. You've got to get that yourself. Um, and don't be afraid to to be confident and be assertive um, and know that imposter syndrome syndrome is real. It's a thing. Um, but what's the worst that can happen? That's what I always ask myself. What is the worst that they can say here?
0: Hey, cracking advice. Um, just want to say thank you so much for uh, joining us on The Doolanders. Landers. Uh, it has been amazing. We think you're amazing with an amazing, amazing woman with an amazing story. We can't wait to see what platform you stand um, on top of next and um facilitate all of those ideas and bring your you know creativity um conversation to a community and um share it at large so thanks talia really appreciate your time
2: my pleasure thank you for having me nick and blake oh double points (laughs) (laughs) thanks (laughs) talia it's great thank you
0: There was a lot to take away from that conversation with Talia. Yeah. I've got a question for you. Mm -hmm. So Talia was really crispy around what her values are. Yep. Her own personal values and how that links to her doing. Have you had had a thought about what your values are and how that links to what you do? Uh,
1: Not to the same sort of extent. I think if you were to classify me as – a thinker or a doer, where do I fit into that? I think I just start doing stuff. Yeah, um, I'm sure if I had a look at a list of values, I'd be able to rattle them off and and say, yeah, well, I suppose this is what I align to. But I don't wake up every day and go, yep, I have a growth mindset. I'm this, I'm that. That's not the way I'm sort of built.
0: How about you? Well, like Tally, I also did an ex- exercise a number of years ago to have a look at what my values are and their growth, creativity and communication. And I do, I, I think about them regularly when I'm thinking about what I'm doing or how I'm uh, attacking something new and it just sort of grounds me around what works for me and what doesn't or how I, pro- how I would approach a certain um, problem to solve or situation or group of people. Um, there were a, a number of really good takeaways from Talia's episode. What, yep. what rang true for you?
1: I think – the, the phrase that sort of sums up so many doers in this world is what Talia's dad told her: Yeah. Was that you've already got a no in your pocket. Yeah. And we'll use Hugh Jackman as an, another example. Uh, if you want to go and interview Hugh, for example, or get him to do something, right now, if you haven't asked him, it's already a no. Your job is to go out and get a yes. So that's, there might be another. That's your job. <laughs> But there might, be, there might be a no that comes back, but you've got to push to get that yes. So I really like that concept. It doesn't have to be about getting Hugh Jackman, obviously. It's about um, asking someone, can I have an opportunity in your organisation? Or asking uh, you know, someone in your family, can I have some time away from uh, the kids so I can go and learn guitar or something like that? If you don't ask, you will always have a no In your pocket. In your pocket. Yeah. And I think that's a a really fascinating concept and uh, something that I'll be taking away with me uh, when I think about the next thing that I'm going to do.
0: The other thing, one of my takeaways was uh, Tully's relationship with experimentation. Yep. And what she learnt through her experience at SIN. Yep. And the world of possibility.
1: Wouldn't it be amazing if it became a thing for our country to sort of try to start setting us apart from from other nations or trying to catch up a little bit mm. is if you you did your schooling, so you you finished year 12 and you did some other sort of education during that awkward period of your 18 to 21 where you're sort of still maturing and finding your way in the world, some sort of education in a field that you're happy with. And then for a period of time after that, there are a bunch of – organizations like sin that are funded that are proper organizations but it gives young people the opportunity to experiment and to take risks there's a safety net in place you can't fail too badly because the type of person that would come out of that organization then into the bigger broader community would be one more mature we've already learnt from many of our other interviewees none of them got their you know their great career or achieved their success immediately out of University or schooling. None of them did. In fact, all of them failed in their 20s to get where they thought they wanted to get to.
0: Their greatest education was in the
1: doing. Absolutely. Mm. So, if you can put people through experiences like Talia's had, her mindset around risk taking and opportunities and growth is so different to someone who, if you just got a graduate role at a big consulting organization and you're being told this is the way that we do it and we've done it like this for for decades, and this is the way that you will do it, very narrow mindset in that regard. It may be very successful, but there could be other opportunities that they're missing out on because they don't have someone with a, with a different sort of mindset.
0: You should do that. You should create
1: that. Was there any, any other takeaways? Well, I guess I've got a question for you, Blake. Sure. Why do people not value the arts? Because this whole coronavirus thing, what mm. has got us through it's Netflix, yep, Spotify, yep. sport. because the arts is about relief and about uh, optimism. entertainment, entertainment. Mm. that's right. But why don't we value it?
0: Well, I think we do. I think as a, as a society, there is a huge amount of value placed on the arts. I think given this COVID situation, and the great news that we've received in terms of uh, our freedom here in Melbourne, if you have a look at pandemics uh, and history, once there's been a significant downturn in the economy, the arts really helps that society come out the other side of it. And I think that right now is the perfect time to be investing time into back into the arts to ensure that the, that medium is there to help us think of what's possible, put creativity into our lives, entertainment, escapism, um, and general positivity yeah. to help this our society move through our our new normal. Uh, I, look, I'm really excited for. What happens next in, in the arts? I hope it really. I hope the government, yeah, puts some money into the uh, into all of those professions to help to help society come through.
1: And I think that's what's probably been the most disappointing thing is the government's response to the arts. Yeah, and they were already underfunded, and were you know they had their funding even you know more greatly reduced during this this uh, pandemic. But as as you say. It'll be the thing that actually pulls us out and brings us together.
0: One last thing that I wanted to touch on that Talia has experienced. And for some of our doers out there, they too may have experienced this, but you know, she at Circus Oz, she worked her way up and moved into that acting CEO yeah. role. And the job went up, she went through the process unfortunately didn't succeed and didn't land the CEO gig, got home, had a look at herself and said, okay, I'm faced with a truckload of adversity here. I can go one or two ways. And I think it was her husband that said how you react at this point in time, really in this piece of adversity, this time of adversity, defines who you are. So yeah. you either you know, suck it up, deal with it, learn from it, move through – or you don't and i love the way that she attacked it and said okay what can i learn from this experience and what can i learn from the new ceo and they've been able to forge this amazing relationship and she's actually learned through this this experience and i think for all of us you know things don't always play out the way that you want to but it's the, the that growth mindset to say okay I've learnt something through this and I'll continue to learn. Uh, I think a, a great example of, um, of that for all of our doers.
1: No, I totally agree with you, Blake. And look, we can't wait to see Circus Oz returning and the arts in general, uh, especially live performances. And isn't it great to know that we've got people like Talia who are going to lead us through that?
0: Sure is. Join me. Ladies and gents, this is the moment you've been waiting for. We
1: really need to fade out of here. (laughs) See you later, Doolanders. Say bye, Blake. Don't be a bitch.
0: Hey, Doolanders. (laughs) If you want to hear more inspiring stories and have this show grow to more and more listeners, do us a favour. Can you like, share, rate and review the Doolander podcast on wherever you, 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 you get your podcast from. Wherever good pods are cast. <laughs> that's where...